Dr. Pippitt is alumni of uh, the University of School of Medicine. She's going to talk about how to get involved in medical education, how she came to choose to become a family practice doctor, as well as going through the couple's match with her husband. We'll also be talking about owning exotic pets, as Dr. Pippitt apparently owns uh, a chinchilla. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Well, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions as well as Medical Student Life with Dr. Chan. We have a special treat today. I'm in, I'm here with Dr. Carly Pippitt, and uh, she is a family practice physician, actually went here to the University of Utah School of Medicine, graduated a couple years after me, um, and hails from the great state of Idaho. So, Dr. Pippitt, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. How are you doing, Dr. Chan? Feeling great. I'm, I'm feeling especially great now that you're here. I wanted you to come on this for a long time. You're making me nervous now. <laughs> All right. So, Dr. Pippett, why don't you talk a little bit about yourself, where you came from, and how you got to where you're at? All right. So, as Dr. Chan said, my name is Carly Pippett. I am a family physician. I was originally born in Twin Falls, Idaho. Went to college at the College of Idaho, which at the time was known as Albertson College of Idaho. And then came down here for medical school, stayed here for family medicine residency, and have been on as faculty for the last five years and involved with medical students since I started as a faculty member. So I'm excited that you're a family practice doc. How did you come to that decision? Did you know before you started medical school? Did something happen here while you while you were at medical school to help that decision? How did you come to that? Good question. Uh, so prior to starting medical school, I worked in a small clinic in Idaho um, in a town of about 100 people. For those of you who know it, it's called Stanley, Idaho. It's about an hour north of Sun Valley. And it was awesome. I worked under a PA and got to do a lot of things that I think you probably shouldn't be able to do as a pre-med student, but it definitely made me interested in um, primary care. I think initially made me more interested in emergency room because I was sort of excited by the sexiness of the blood and guts and drama. And then as I got into medical school, I realized what I really cared about was the relationships and getting to know people and um, especially getting to know people through time. And then also as I went through third year, I loved everything. I didn't want to limit myself to just seeing adults, just seeing kids, just seeing women. So it was a good blend of some procedures, some continuity of care, and also left me with a lot of options for the future. Fantastic. And so as an Idaho resident uh, during your third year, and correct me if I'm wrong, you got to go back to Idaho for four weeks of family practice and three weeks of internal medicine. That is correct. Where did you go for those? So for my four weeks of family medicine, I went to Nampa, Idaho, and worked with uh, a doctor named Dr. Heidi Shields, who was unfortunately no longer there, but she was actually my physics professor from college's wife, Mm -hmm. which is how I got connected with her. And I actually spent... Seven or, eight, seven or eight weeks with her between the summer of my first and second year. So it was actually a bit of a homecoming to kind of go back to working with her, which was pretty awesome. Got to deliver my first babies with her, mm-hmm. um, which was great. And then... Are there oh, a bunch of Carly ba- babies named Carly because of you running around Idaho? No. Okay. Definitely not. Okay. Um, and then during my uh, internal medicine rotation, I went back to Twin Falls, which is my hometown, and I actually got to work with the doc who was my grandpa's doctor, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And how did you feel as an Idaho resident being down here among mostly uh, Utah residents? Our Idaho crew was pretty tight. We felt pretty special. For some reason in my class, there were nine of us instead of eight. Mm -hmm. So we always had the big joke about which one of us probably shouldn't have been there. The mistake. Yes. Yes. I don't know that we use that word, but one of us we always felt like maybe got lucky. That's great. And so um, you're down at the U. You decide on family practice. 
um, because I'm kind of targeting this podcast for, you know, Idaho residents or current med students. Like, how did you choose your residency program? What kind of decision went into it? So for me, choosing a residency program was a little bit different because my husband was also in medical school here. So we Ah. met in college and came down to med school together and then did what's called the couples match. So with the couples match, you both rank locations and um, with the couples match, you end up in the same city. So he couldn't have ended up in D.C. and I would have ended up in Boise Mm -hmm. because the match just doesn't work that way. So I was limited more by where my husband's residency locations were. And he went into um, the combined specialty of internal medicine and pediatrics which is not as popular in the West. So we actually interviewed quite a bit uh, in the East because that's where more of the programs are. And the match happens how the match happens. And here we are, and we couldn't have been happier. That's great. So when you do the couples match, do you interview at the same time at all these programs? Or is it they, do they try to like have you out in the same interview day or no? So if you're lucky, you interview on the same time. And for us, we actually got to do most of our interviews together, which was pretty awesome. We got married during our fourth year. And so this was almost like an extended honeymoon for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think everywhere but one location we managed to interview together. And then we met up and sort of traveled somewhere after that. But it was great because then we got to spend usually about three or four days in a location because one of us would interview one day, one of us would interview the next. So we each got a chance to see the city where we were at. Did you know early on that you were going to link your applications? Or, I mean, did you ever have any discussions about not doing the couples match? No, not okay. at all. <laughs> not at all. I do love my husband. So. Okay. <laughs> we I'm sort of wanted implied. to be in the same place. <laughs> right. As Yeah, I would highly recommend that if you're in a very happy successful marriage which sounds like you are all right which you don't have to be in a marriage or relationship to do the couples match by the way so if you wanted to match with your really great friend Mm -hmm. you could couples match together how many people couples match a year oh that's a good question i think in our class we probably had mm, close to 10 we actually had quite a few i think every year across the nation there's between 100 and 150 uh, individuals so you know 75 couples matching and I would say in our residency class, and we take eight residents a year, there's probably at least one per year, if not two, that's part of a couple. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty common, pretty common for us anyway. Okay. So let's, let's kind of jump ahead in time. It's your match day. So match day here at University of Utah, it's a day set aside where everyone learns where they match. You put your envelopes on a table, and no one really knows where they're going, and you kind of run up, or there's different ceremonies every year. Tell me about your couple's match. Oh, we were pretty excited. I think, you know, it it was interesting. We had thought about this is a chance to go live somewhere else, you know, and we're sort of homebodies. We're both from Idaho. We live in Utah. We haven't lived in any other states. We thought this might be a great opportunity to sort of get out of Dodge, but we both really liked the programs here. Um, And I would say we're definitely, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. I think it was a great place. So we were pretty excited to still be here. Okay. Fantastic. And so tell me about your residency program. How long was it? What kind of rotations did you do? What kind of hospitals were you at? So our residency is three years. It's based primarily out of Salt Lake Regional Hospital, which is a community hospital here in the Valley. But we do a handful of rotations, both at the University Hospital and at LDS Hospital, which is one of the Intermountain facilities. Um, we do a little bit of everything. I mean, it's that's what family medicine is all about. So in some ways, it sort of felt like hearkening back to third year because... You change rotations every four weeks, so we do things from ENT to surgery to GYN to inpatient medicine to ICU, um, and then all in the meantime, sprinkling in some clinic in there. That's fantastic. How many babies have you delivered? Oh, let's see. So I don't deliver babies now that I am in attending, but when I was a resident, I probably delivered mm, close to 125 babies or okay. so. And none of them are named Carly. No, none of them are named Carly. That just breaks my heart. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe the, maybe the next generation will go on. Maybe they're second babies could that they, I won't deliver. Could they be named Pippet? 
as that, a first name? I don't think that rolls off the tongue quite as easily as Carly. Well, there's a lot of strange names in Utah. This, so this I, is true. I would not be surprised. All right. So you graduate your residency. Why did you stick around? Why are you still on faculty here? So my husband actually, his residency was four years. So we had sort of a decision to think about, was I going to do something for just a year or what was going to happen? Um, one of the faculty members in my department was part of the new curriculum redesign and came to me sort of in the fall of my last year of residency, asked me what I was going to do and said, you know, they were looking for people to teach uh, what had been formerly known as physical diagnosis and be a part of this new curriculum. And so, uh, I think it was a lot by luck that I happened to be involved and it was really kind of a great opportunity to come back and actually end up teaching with a lot of people who had taught me. I feel pretty honored and lucky. Okay. Fantastic. So, um, you stuck around, you got, cause like I get asked a lot, like Dr. Chan, how do you get involved in medical education? How do you get inside the Dean's office? How do you teach medical students? And what, what would you say to that Dr. Pippett? I think some of it is letting your intentions be known early. So I think they're doing things a little bit different now in the curriculum and they're trying to give the senior medical students more options to and more opportunities to teach the first and second year medical students. So not just in tutoring and didactic ways, but also in learning physical exam skills and helping them practice. I think as a resident, depending on where your residency is, we don't have a whole lot of medical students where where we're at at Salt Lake Regional, but you definitely have an opportunity when you're here as a resident to teach medical students, especially at the university. So that's a way you can get involved. Um, Being a chief medical resident always seems to be a good way to get Mm. involved. And I think it's just making your intentions known, going and talking to people in the dean's office and medical education and saying, hey, this is what I'm really interested in. How can I help you? It seems like we're always looking for faculty. So anyone who's willing, we can find a way to get them involved. And yeah, that's excellent. I agree with that. Like what I tell a lot of people is there, there comes, there comes a decision There comes down to a choice. You're sitting at your computer and you know, you're opening up your emails and you get an email from the Dean's office saying, Hey, we need faculty volunteers to help teach this, this lecture. We need faculty volunteers to supervise the medical students taking a test or doing a physical exam or things like that. And none of these activities are compensated. Um, and I think it fits into the overall mission of the medical school dedicated to clinical care research as well as education. And I tell people it comes down to a choice because when you get those emails, a lot of people just delete them, don't give them a second thought. The ones that get offered positions later on are the ones that volunteer and kind of get their name out there. And like you said, get their name known in the dean's office like, hey, this faculty member, they're very interested in teaching med students. They're interested in curriculum. They're interested in missions, student affairs type activities. And they that's how you get your name out there. So Absolutely. And I would say even if there's not a teaching opportunity, there's other ways. There's plenty of committees. There's admissions. There's other ways you can sort of get your foot in the door mm. to find out more information, sort of what's happening this end of the School of Medicine. Yeah. Something that shocks me is like my colleagues come up to me and say, hey, I'm interested in med student education. I've worked here for like 10 years. How do I start? I say like, well... You get the same emails I do. So, I mean, you just can't go from like zero to 60. You have to kind of go stepwise fashion. Exactly. Exactly. So um, you are unit director, correct? Correct. Tell me what a unit is. How does that fit into medical education? So the units are primarily the different sections, I guess, for lack of a better word, that um, comprise medical school. So I am part of phase one, which is the first unit of medical school. It is 17 weeks long. There are three different sort of courses that happen within that. And I am one of the two unit directors of what we call foundations of medicine. So this is a 17 week course that covers topics like anatomy, histology, biochemistry, genetics, pharmacology, physiology, evidence-based medicine, um, kind of a hodgepodge of all sorts 
sorts of topics to try to get all students who enter the same foundation so that they can move on. Mm-hmm. So what kind of, I mean, what kind of classes are we talking about? Are we talking about art and science medicine or I mean, are we talking about physical diagnosis or what, what are we talking about? So physical diagnosis is a different course within the unit now that, um, or within phase one that now lasts for the entire four years. Uh, it used to be a part of this foundations of medicine. Um, there are some arts courses as well. There's also a humanistic and cultural medicine. That's a different uh, course that's also running in the same time period. So those two areas cover a little bit more of the clinical and art side of medicine, but those definitely come into play in the foundations of medicine course as well. A lot of our anatomy and histology, we try to really make it clinically relevant so that um, students have sort of something to put this information that they're getting. So it has more of a context and is not just facts to memorize. They have cases on Friday that are clinical cases that try to help tie up the um, knowledge that they've had during the week. And we have a smattering of patient presentations and different things to help um, bring it all together and, and make it interesting. Fantastic. And so as unit director, you sounds like you have a voice in changing the unit from year to year. Absolutely. And one of the things I pride our medical school on is uh, getting medical student input. So can you give me some examples of how, you know, the unit may have changed over the past few years due to med student feedback or faculty feedback or things like that? I think the thing that I can think of the easiest off the top of my head is that the the course of clinical medicine used to be on Thursdays. Mm -hmm. So that used to be the day that we would do all the teaching. And um, one of the students, a couple of the students actually said, So Wednesdays are a long day for the students. They have anatomy lab in the morning, and then they have class in the afternoon. And one of the students, and actually one of our faculty members, suggested, why don't we move clinical medicine to Wednesdays? It's a little bit more of a fun day. Sometimes people think of it as a little bit softer than everything else. Mm -hmm. So um, it got moved to Wednesdays. So for the last three years now, it's been on a Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely a positive change. Why would clinical medicine be softer? What's going on there? I think it's more exciting for students. It okay. feels like being a real doctor. I think sometimes when you're sitting through lectures about, you know, Punnett squares on the Krebs cycle, you you lose sight of what it is to be interacting with patients, to learn how to examine patients. And so this this brings back some of that excitement and some of the reason that you went into medicine in the first place. Oh, fantastic. So, and what does the future hold for the unit? I mean, what, what does it look like for ne- like this year compared to next year? What kind of things are on the horizon? I think every year we continue to fine-tune it a little bit and try to make sure that the weeks are as integrated as possible. So every week we have a theme. We sort of go based on anatomy um, and body systems. And so like this week, uh, we've gone to the lungs. Prior to that, we had two weeks of the heart. And so every year we really try to get the integration even better and better so that perhaps the ethics lecture that that, that is that week... Whatever the concept is they talk about, we try to integrate it a little bit more into what we're doing. We're talking about getting a little bit more of clinical integration in towards the end and perhaps doing doing an hour lecture by me that kind of ties together some more clinical concepts um, with the students. Instead of working in small groups with a facilitator, being able to have a doctor talk through a case and be, you know, this is how I think about it. These are things that are important or these are things that as I sit through and listen to your lectures on the week that I think about how I use this information on a practical basis. Excellent. So, you know, I guess another question that pops on in mind, Dr. Pippet, is like, are you involved in the family practice residency program still or any type of interest groups or are you connected to the family practice aspect in any way? 
So definitely, I mean, family practice is what I do. It's mm-hmm. where I live. So um, our clinics have residents in them. So there are always residents seeing patients in clinic. And then once a week, I supervise the residents in clinic. So the residents always have an attending that's supervising them, that they um, talk to talk to the attending about their patients, make sure they're doing the right things. I mean, we're there to help them learn and guide them. Mm-hmm. So I supervise the residents at least a half day a week. Um, I do some teaching within the residency as well um, as part of our our as part of what we do in our department. Um, and then in terms of interest group, I am involved in the family medicine interest group as it's uh, housed in our department. But mm-hmm. the group that I'm probably the most involved with on campus is a group called Primary Care Progress, mm-hmm. which is a national group that's goal is to promote primary care. So that's a new group on campus here, and our goal is to be interdisciplinary. And then I'm also very involved in the student-run Malihe Clinic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk more about the Primary Care Progress. So when did that start? Did you bring it here to the U? How- so Primary Care Progress has been a around for probably a, about a year and a half, almost two years. And the founder of the group, who's an internal medicine physician from Boston, his name is Andrew Morrisinger, came out to our department with a couple of other guests and actually wanted, he and one of the other um, people who came out wanted to talk to a group of students. And so each of these speakers spoke to the students and uh Dr. Morris Singer is just really engaging and really passionate about primary care. And I think um, in his previous life was a community organizer. And you can just see that. And just talking to him, he makes you feel energized and revitalized about primary care and that there really is a future. And a couple of the students were really uh, enlightened by what he had to say and started talking to some of us in the department about would we like to start a group. And I said, let's, let's get it. Let's get it on the ground. All right. Fantastic. And what is the Malahi Clinic? I've heard a lot about this clinic, but yeah. I'd like to hear from your perspective what it is. So the Malahi Clinic is one of the free clinics in the Valley. Um, they take patients who do not have any insurance. Um, a lot of, many of them are undocumented. So they provide primary care. They also have some specialties that come and um, help help deal with other concerns of the patients for I want to say about three years potentially four there's been a Saturday student run clinic it's just in this last year that the students have really made it an organized student group although they have been doing a Saturday clinic um, I want to say for about four years now so Michael Morgan is the student who started this he graduated last year and he had been pretty involved in Malihe as a pre-med student Mm -hmm. so uh, every Saturday from usually October to about April the medical students will have a clinic there's a volunteer attendant there, um, often a community physician, and we see anywhere from four to eight patients on a Saturday morning and help get them into the system. So what we're doing is taking off, it can be as much as a six-month wait to get into the clinic, so what we're doing is help reduce that waiting list. Do medical students have to speak a foreign language to work or volunteer in this clinic? Uh, they do not have to. We always have students. So you can do a couple things as a student and volunteer. You can be a student seeing patients. You can, as you're more involved, you could be potentially a manager. And you can go just as an interpreter. So speaking um, Spanish definitely is helpful, but not required. Excellent. Excellent. So going back to the couples match, Dr. Pippet, um, when you went out and interviewed, did, uh, did the program's interview know that you were in the midst of couples matching? And would that program, would the family practice program be in contact with the other program that your husband was interviewing to kind of coordinate? How does it work at that level? So you can declare if you want people to know if you're in the couples match or not. So that's, you can have that decision. That's a question that they can't ask you. It's one of those 
illegal or forbidden questions like okay. they can't ask you if you're married or um, what religion you are mm-hmm. so we had declared that we were couples matching so it was known to the programs that we were at you can talk to programs and I know more of that from being you know now as a faculty side and a resident than I did as a medical student applicant but it's not uncommon for you know potentially the neurosurgery program to call us and say hey you know we have this awesome applicant I hear you're interviewing his wife you know, we really want him. What can you do to make sure that she matches here as well? Okay. And then the couples match on the computer. I mean, it's you and your husband both log in and put your rank list. Mm-hmm. Is it tied together or let's pretend your husband made a mistake and did a different rank list than you did. Are they linked? And is that impossible to do? Or could your husband like make a mistake? Cause it's always the husband that makes mistakes. Correct. And so you said it, not me. <laughs> um, so Dr. Pippet's giving me the strange look. So trying to figure this I out. I can't remember if the, the lists were linked is not, I know we had to put the same cities. So there were some, so, you know, if we both ranked salt Lake, there's a couple of programs here in salt Lake. So he could have potentially, but there's only one med peds program here. So he could potentially put for his number, one spot University of Utah MedPeds and I could put University of Utah Family Medicine for his number two spot he could put University of Utah MedPeds and I could put say I wanted to put McKay D in you know Ogden as my second choice so that we would still you know if I didn't get into the university that he and he got in here we I wouldn't move him off the list because I could still get into McKay D so it sounds like when you do the couples match you have the choice to pick like cities or areas. So both of you can be within the same geographical. Exactly. So, so you sort of get the decision to put it, you know, so maybe a half hour was too far. Mm -hmm. So maybe that wouldn't be on my list as a couples match. So it's really more based on location. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if the lists are linked in the system or not. That'd be a question for Dr. Stevenson. Okay. And then what happens if one of you don't match? So neither of you match, correct? Is that kind of how it works? So, you know, if, so say I didn't get into the University of Utah Family Medicine, but he got into University of Utah MedPeds, we automatically both move down to our second one on the list. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Very interesting. Some people, I think, think that the couples match can be more hurtful because, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe you hurt the other one's chances, but I maybe it's the, the optimism. Cu- one part, yeah. li- like one part of the couple lifts other person up. Exactly. Based on their competitiveness of their application. Exactly. That's the way I like to think about it. So how did you and your husband, did you pull each other up at the same time? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good to know. Oh, harmonious. All right. Well, we're nearly out of time. Dr. Pippet, I appreciate your time. Um, I want to talk about animals. So apparently you like to collect exotic animals. I don't know if I'd say collect, but... (laughs) Mm-hmm. Well, possessing one. Yes. So what kind of animal do you have in your house right now? So we have a chinchilla. A chinchilla. Mm-hmm. How did you become, how did you get in possession of a chinchilla? So this chinchilla we've actually had since our first year of medical school. Um, and so my, we wanted a, we wanted a pet when we were in medical school. And my husband said uh, he'd had a chinchilla as a kid and we lived in an apartment and we sort of needed a small pet. And he convinced me that we should get a chinchilla. Low maintenance, which I think was probably the most important thing, especially especially as we went through medical school, something that we didn't have to be home for every day necessarily, didn't have to take on walks. My chinchilla does not have a leash, much to what I see you're imagining in the bubble above your head. Um, 
and you know, for the most part, our, our chinchilla lives in a cage, but I would say they're much more social animals than you would give them credit for. Well, can you describe a chinchilla for the people who may not know what this animal is? Yes. So our chinchilla, his name is Alberto. He is probably about the size of a guinea pig, so smaller than a rabbit. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're very, very soft. That's what they're known for is how soft their fur is. Unfortunately, they used to be used to make fur coats because their fur is so fine and soft. They have a long, bushy tail and sort of big, round ears. And they, they kind of bounce don't they do they run or do they bounce around the apartment Mm, when they get excited so our you know the one we have right now we used to have two and um i think when they get excited and run they maybe do a little bit more bouncing not quite as high as you would think of as like a bunny rabbit Mm -hmm. sometimes they'll sort of like ollie off the corners like on the walls or something if they're running fast dr pippet what happened to the second chinchilla our second chinchilla died just this last spring mysterious circumstances uh, so they actually, they're a rodent, so they have um, they have teeth that just sort of grow and grow and grow. I don't know what the technical term is for that in the back. And her mm. teeth just wore out, and she couldn't eat anymore. Oh. We actually were making her a softened diet so that she could eat, a that's, mechanical soft diet. That's very kind of you. Mm-hmm. So so Alberto's all by himself. He is. Okay. His woman died. And, th- and then how much do chinchillas cost? I mean, where do you go to get chinchillas? So chinchillas are actually pretty expensive. They're usually about 100 bucks. Um, we actually got Alberto from a from a pet store and then we got um, our our other chinchilla Fiona from a breeder. Mm. Um, and they are not they're not what you would think of when you think of rodents as being um, rapidly proliferative. Their mm. gestation is actually pretty long for the size of rodent that they are. And we had a handful of babies that we actually would give away to people because mm. they just make a really nice pet. And those probably make really nice gifts, too, little baby chinchillas. So Yeah, if only I had that to give to you. <laughs> so um, why – I'm still trying to understand why a chinchilla. Why not a bunny rabbit? Why not a guinea pig? You know, I don't really have an answer for that. That okay. was just my husband was like, I had a chinchilla when I was a kid. Let's have a chinchilla. They're a great pet. Do they leave a lot of hair and fur around, or are they pretty clean animals? They're pretty clean animals. They actually... Um, potty trained, or...? Mm, we tried to potty train Alberto, and he ate the uh, litter, so <laughs> we stopped at that. But uh, they, um, the oils from their fur and from your hands are actually kind of irritating to them. So the, okay. what they do to clean themselves is they take a dust bath in mm. volcanic ash, which is pretty cool. Um, we probably let Alberto do that about once a week. Take a dust bath in volcanic ash. That is correct. Ash. You can go buy volcanic ash at the yes. store? Yes, okay. yes. Wow, I am learning a lot today. This is fascinating. Are they safe with children? Do they, do they bite? Uh, I would say they nibble. I think our female was a little bit more of a nibbler than Alberto is, but um, it's not, It's. I mean, it's like with any animal. If you startle it, I think they're a little bit more likely to do that, mm-hmm. but they're mostly just very curious. They don't really like to be grabbed in the face or things like that, um, but our male chinchilla usually will just bat us away with his hand. Do they make a sound? They occasionally make a chirp or a barking sound. Can you imitate it for us on this no. podcast? Okay. Nice try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I tried to go there. Mm-hmm. Oh, I failed. Um, cool. And then, like my last question is: Have you ever brought it to school? Has because I, you know, have you ever brought it for your medical students? Have you ever brought it to clinic? Is it a therapeutic chinchilla? I'm trying to ask. Mm, good question. So when we were fourth year medical students, I think we had. We had just had babies. I can't remember if there were two or three in that litter. And I was in um, a humanities course with just a small number of us. It was right before we graduated. And so we actually brought the chinchillas um, to class for that to sort of share. They don't love traveling. We've taken them with us back to Idaho before. And my brother's dog was really excited about mm-hmm. them. But uh, I don't know that they were as excited about the trip to Idaho. Mm-hmm. What do you feed them? They have a little pellet food that okay. they eat, and um, they also eat some hay. Okay. Our chinchilla really loves raisins for treats as well. Excellent. Cool. 
Well, this has been a fantastic podcast. Thank you for coming in, Dr. Pippett. My pleasure, Dr. Chan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.